Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Today on Democracy Sausage, we're standing in front of some flags and shaking hands awkwardly as we ask all the questions you ever wanted to know about international relations. What can you read into leaders' body language? What does Vladimir Putin have in common with George Brandis? And could it really be that they are both right? Or perhaps both really right-wing? Is the G20 anything more than a support group for embattled leaders? And is there a new Cold War playing out in the Pacific? Hello and welcome to Democracy Sausage with me, Mark Kenny, coming to you from the ANU, a joint production of Policy Forum Net and uh, the ANU. Um, and we have a particular foreign policy kind of focus, I think, here today. There's been a lot happening in the international space, and I'm glad to say that we've got some of the ANU's genuine experts here. Uh, but first, let me bring in, uh, obviously, each week my partner in this pod series, Dr. Maria Taflaga. How are you, Maria? Very well, Mark. And uh, and for all those listeners that sent in questions last week that were all very foreign policy related, never fear. We, we have recruited guests today that can really dig into your questions. Yes, that's a good thing. And of course, you can always uh, get to us with uh, questions and comments, and we're eager to incorporate them into the pod. You can do that through Apps Policy Forum on Twitter. The Facebook group is Policy Forum Pod, and the email is podcast at policyforum.net. Now, it's my pleasure to welcome Michael Wesley. Michael Wesley is the Dean of the College of Asia and the Pacific here at the ANU. How are you, Michael? I'm very well, Mark. Thanks for having me along. Uh, it's good to have you along, and uh, there's plenty to talk about in your field of expertise. And also, Lauren Richardson. Lauren is the Director of Studies and Lecturer at the Asia-Pacific College of Diplomacy. So there's been a bit in that space as well, particularly in uh, as far as diplomacy goes with the, uh, the Alex Sigley matter that uh, happened in the... Uh, in the so-called Democratic People's Republic of Korea. Right, that's right. Yeah, it's an exciting time for diplomacy. <laughs> yes, it, well, it's, that's right. It's always an exciting time for diplomacy whenever there's a lot of instability around, I right. guess. And, and yep. perhaps let's start talking about uh, that particular case, Lauren. It, it ended up quite with, with quite a positive outcome to it. Alex Sigley, uh, you know, was suddenly released by the North Korean authorities you know, he'd been missing uh, there for whatever it was, only about eight a days. Week or yeah, so. yep. and um, these things have a habit of dragging on. There's a case, as I think has been in the media this morning, of a an Australian national who's being detained in Beijing, in China, and that's been going on since January. Uh, his wife, a permanent uh, Australian resident, is also uh, stopped from leaving the country. But in the case of this one in the DPRK. Uh, there was a lot of concern for Alex Sigley, said to be the only Australian living in North Korea, uh, right. and um, and then he was released. So that, that was a pretty pretty amazing and fairly swift outcome. Yeah, it, it was a great outcome. I think everyone was particularly worried, not just because of the nature of the North Korean regime, but um, because of the much publicised um, case of the American um, Otto Wombia, who was um, yeah. also detained, well, actually charged, and who came out in a coma and died shortly after being returned home. So I think 
you know, there was a lot of concern that he'd been tortured and um, ended up in that state. So no one really knew how this was going to turn out. And eight days, you know, is quite a long time. And so obviously I imagine it felt fairly long to him and to his family. Exactly. Um, I should say he's actually an ANU ANU alumnus. So, uh, uh, you know, he's from this university originally. Yeah, Um, he's a really interesting um, guy. I mean, it's amazing. He he did Asian studies at ANU and developed an interest in Northeast Asia. He's got experience with studying China and Japan and then moved into Korean studies and he went to great lengths to be accepted as a master's student in North Korea. And it's pretty phenomenal that, you know, he was studying North Korean literature there. And I think a lot of people are reading into this case, oh, North Korea is just too dangerous. We shouldn't go there under any circumstances. But I think that, you know, I mean, most people do come out okay. Um, Alex did, in a sense, pushed the boundaries a little in that he was publishing things about North Korea while he was in North Korea. Yeah, that uh, struck me as quite surprising that yeah. he was uh, using um, social media to make posts and and provide sort of observations, uh, exercising a freedom, Michael, that uh, mm. the, the – um, you know, obviously the citizens of that country do not have themselves. Yeah, look, I think uh, in any authoritarian regime you've got to – Choose your words and choose your mediums pretty carefully. Um, uh, and look, I, 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 I'm not a great follower of social media, I have to say, so I have no idea what uh, Alec was, uh, was, was publishing. But um, this is a regime, it seems to me, Lauren, that, uh, that will turn very quickly mm-hmm. and, uh, and very unpredictably. And, and Alec probably found that to his cost. Yeah, that's right. And I think... You know, he'd been doing this for quite a long time and for a long time we didn't know exactly why he'd been detained but it it has come out through North Korea's mouthpiece that they suspected he was spying and, you know, sort Mm. of making damaging comments about the regime but I don't think there's any actual evidence of that and I guess that's the case that Sweden made when they... um, Yeah, well, let's go to that because, I mean, you're an expert on on sort of diplomacy and how these uh, powers interact with each other. Uh, in, in particularly in this region, um, Australia doesn't have an embassy in Pyongyang, uh, so right. the diplomatic effort we mm-hmm. understand happened through the Swedes. Yes. Uh, we also understand that Scott Morrison at the G20 recently was quietly taking up this case with some of the other world leaders. So, what, what do you make of those those efforts? I mean, obviously they worked, but what, what, you know, it's a pretty unorthodox a set of you know circumstances. Yes, yeah, so there there is a, a diplomatic norm that you know when a country is not represented in another country um, through an embassy that you can have a sort of um, intermediary who does have an embassy there. And Sweden has played this role for a very long time in North Korea and as an intermediary in other um, diplomatic disputes as well. Obviously, Sweden has um, a long history of this um, following this principle of neutrality. And it's had very good relations with North Korea. It didn't fight against North Korea in the in the Korean War. Um, it's had an embassy there for a very long time, mm. much um, earlier than the UK and many other countries. And they have always maintained this stance of neutrality on North Korean issues. So that puts them in a very good position to negotiate the release of not just um, the Australian um, student, but many other um, nationals from other countries from yeah, North Korea. Yeah, and, I mean, Australia has a similar kind of role, plays that role in Tehran, does it not, uh, Michael? It does. It does. Uh, often 
representing American interests or um, conveying messages back to the United States. I should um, I should observe as an aside, Mark, that Australia has had diplomatic relations with North Korea in the past. In fact, uh, there is a book to be written about some of the bizarre things that happened. I believe the North Koreans established an embassy here in Canberra in the 1970s and then suddenly shut it down with the two diplomats posted here making their way towards the airport very late at night in the 1970s and actually crashing their car on the way. So, um, so <laughs> must have yeah, been traffic. There's been, <laughs> there's been an, must have been one of those roundabouts. Yeah. There's been an interesting history. But no, that's right. It, I mean, there is a tradition of um, particularly democratic countries uh, stepping in and helping each other where, uh, you know, their, their um, uh, representation uh, may not uh, extend to particular countries. And so uh, I think that uh, this, is, it, this is something that routinely occurs uh, when uh, particularly uh, people, uh, countries find their citizens in trouble in a regime that they don't understand and that, and that they don't have official diplomatic relations with. Yes, well, that said, I mean, when the Swedes initially took up the case, I understand the DPRK officials were saying, were denying any knowledge of Alex Sigley's whereabouts or any, you know, denying that he was even being held. So, um, you know, I mean, obviously, as, as, as you described it, Michael, it's an authoritarian state. It mm. does not have a strong record of transparency or of accountability or of observing individual rights. So I guess we shouldn't be surprised about that. But, you know, suddenly, whatever it was, something unlocked uh, uh, the, uh, you know, Alex Sigley, literally. Mm. And and before we knew it, he was, um, he was in Beijing. And um, I'd point out that, you know, North Korea, almost uniquely in the world, doesn't seem to care what other countries think of it. Um, it has a, a historical record of doing quite outrageous things and really not seeming to care. A great example, Lauren, for example, is, you know, blowing up the South Korean cabinet in Yangon back in the 1980s, was it? Yeah, I think so, that's right. So, you know, obviously, um, you, know, con you know, these considerations of reputation often do restrain other authoritarian states, but... North Korea, particularly under Kim Jong-un, doesn't really seem to give a toss what people think and believes it can be as brutal as it likes, assassinating, you know, uh, brothers of leaders and mm. that sort of thing in, 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 in random airports. Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, it's an interesting point, though, uh, that you make there because uh, I guess the other, you know, key uh, development in this space uh, in, in recent days has been, of course, that surprise visit of Trump mm. to the 38th parallel. Um Maybe, and maybe I'm being optimistic here, but what do you think about this? That what you're saying is correct. They've never cared about what the rest of the world thinks, but suddenly they did. Perhaps there is some softening uh, as a result of uh, Trump bringing uh, the North Korea into the international community to some extent. He's obviously showing uh, Kim Jong-un a lot of respect, isn't he? So is do you think that was a factor at all in this? I mean, at the same time as they are being brought into the international community, but it didn't help having this Australian in detention and you know all the all the kind of friction over that. Or do you think I'm? Just, yeah, I can see you smiling. You think I'm just being optimistic? Well, I mean, I, I would I would probably say that Trump is up there with Kim Kim Jong Un as someone who doesn't particularly care what other countries think of him, except he does react when you know. Uh, uh, as long as they think he's great. 
That's okay. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> as long as they think he's great. <clears throat> Look, I mean, he does react when the, the Iranians call him mentally deranged, but um, he but he he also tends to do outrageous things. Mm. Uh, and look, I mean... But we're not suggesting any equivalence here, are we? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, uh, there could be a coincidence. I, I think there's been some speculation that, um, that, that Alex Sigley was detained because the North Koreans didn't want any social media tweeting while, you know, Trump was doing his 20 steps in North Korea. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's, I guess there's a possibility there, but... Yeah. I guess Sweden possibly mm-hmm. could have used that as leverage in the negotiations. You yeah. Know, that there is going to be a lot of positive attention on you. You don't want this to detract from that. And who knows if Trump said anything to him? P- probably not. It seems that it was the Swedes who, who, um, I guess take credit for this. But yeah, the timing, it's, it's very much a coincidence, I think. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Well, I guess this is a good opportunity for us to sort of segue into some questions from last week. So we had um, Joanne Chen who asked us a question about US, Australian and Chinese relations. And essentially she sort of asked about um, Scott Morrison asserting that Australia is a standard bearer for democracy in the region and the rule of law. And she wonders how this might impact on uh, how Australia navigates this relationship, particularly given our economic ties. I'll just make the point that you know, he may say that we're a standard bearer for uh, democracy and the rule of law in the region, but we certainly do have uh, strong relations with countries that don't particularly respect democracy and the rule of law. Um, I could name countries, but I think uh, listeners will be very aware of uh, the countries I'm talking uh, about. Uh, look, my my feeling is that Australian foreign policy has always been very realist in the way that it's conceived and executed. Uh, If we were to stand as standard bearers of democracy and the rule of law, it would give us a very different foreign policy from the one uh, we currently have. Uh, I think we make compromises uh, and uh, and and in in the name of the broader national interest, which is our prosperity and our security in this particular part of the that, world. That's a really interesting observation. When you say uh, if we were to to operate as standard bearers for democracy, can you just unpick that a bit? What do you mean that it would involve a different foreign policy? Would it, are you suggesting that to to fulfil that role, we would need to be? Um, effectively only dealing with countries that shared our values and and, and actively promoting those values in ways that we're not doing at the moment. Yeah, look, um, basically that phrase to me suggests that you you give countries a rating based on uh, the extent to which you think they are democracies and they respect the rule of law and human rights and those sorts of things. Um, And uh, those that you don't think uh, have those standards, you have somehow a lower standard of, of relations with. Now, what I would point out is that um, uh, a variety of democracy indexes have pointed out that uh, a lot of countries in our region are going uh, in the wrong direction in terms of democracy and the rule of law. Mm. In fact, I think uh, the last one I saw, Japan, South Korea, Taiwan and India were about the only countries that we could confidently say had um, quite high standards of democracy and the rule of law. I actually think India is starting to be a bit worrying under the Modi regime. Um, that means that we ca- we would have to 
uh, literally downgrade our diplomatic relations with the majority of countries in our region, which would be highly problematic. And where do you put Indonesia in that? Uh, it's obviously a smaller trading partner, but it's a huge nation and it's close, one of the closest nations to us. Where does Indonesia Indeed. In? Well, according to a lot of dip- diplomatic indexes, Indonesia has gone backwards mm-hmm. in terms of democracy and the rule of law. Uh, since uh, it it became a democracy back in 1998. Um, If we were really a standard bearer of uh, democracy, uh, rule of law and human rights, we wouldn't have had relations, diplomatic relations, or at least very, we would have had very low diplomatic relations uh, for much of the period uh, from 1966 through to 1998, where, whereas obviously we had re- relatively close relations and we needed those close relations. So um, look, I, I think that uh, it's important that we identify with our democratic values and our rule of law, but we do need to be pragmatic in the way that we conduct our foreign policy and that's um, essentially what we do. That's effectively what we've done. I mean, uh, at one stage not so long ago, Scott Morrison described the situation as the US being our friend and China being our customer. Is that uh, What do you think of that, Lauren? Is that, I mean, that raised some eyebrows, uh, particularly in Beijing. Yeah, I think it, I mean, these sort of, sorts of phrases about us being a standard bearer of democracy, um, Japan, the Prime Minister Abe is also using similar sort of phrases when he's talking to China and it's sort of become a way of standing up to China without calling China out directly. Yeah, that's interesting. And I think that it's a bit problematic that if we just use this, apply this to China because the US has been undermining, you know, some of these liberal order rules that we have set and we, we need to also call the US out on those things as well. Um, not just China. But I do think that, yeah, it has become a way. I mean, Japan uses the the phrase like-minded maritime democracies and things like this as a way to show that, you know, if China, China is rising, but we don't want to accept any sort of illiberal norms that China might be trying to accept. And so is this, is this kind of rhetorical containment mm. almost? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think Lauren's point's a great one, actually. I think Australia and Japan and a range of other countries are effectively saying, look, China might be a lucrative commercial opportunity, but it's really scary. And you don't want to get too close to these guys. And so I think one of the things that's been happening over the last 18 months to two years with Australia very much in the the lead has has been every time China is perceived as doing something that's a bit scary or a bit, you know, not on, um, we get up there and we really trumpet it uh, as a way of saying really to the rest of uh, I'm I'm here, you know, uh, picking out Southeast Asia and the South Pacific to say, you know, just be careful of China. You'd be better off sticking close to us, sticking closer to the, to the Americans, the Japanese and so on. So can I ask, Lauren, can we unpick this sort of language stuff a little bit more? How much thought kind of goes into um, the selecting of language and how much do leaders effectively kind of have to roll with the punches? I particularly ask because Owen Lawson um, has asked us about what we thought of uh, the images of seeing, uh, you know, um, the Australian Prime Minister shaking hands with uh, the Saudi Prince Mohammed bin Salam, particularly given that country's record on the freedom of the press, given the Khashoggi case in particular, um, but also just the fact that, as Michael has sort of pointed out, a lot of these countries don't have great records on democracy. 
It's a it's a really good question, and actually, a, a trip I did to Tokyo earlier this year it was in February. I sort of got a real first hand insight into how this works.、Um, I was on this program. We were doing interviews with various people in the Japanese government, and we had the opportunity to talk to Prime Minister Abe's speechwriter. He's been his speechwriter for so many years, and he writes his speeches that he delivers in English in foreign countries. And he also advises him on body language, when to pause for impact, and things like that. And it was fascinating how、wow. we, we asked him, you know, how how is it that Abe has managed to transition so seamlessly between his relationship with Obama and Trump? And he said, "Oh, you know, it's easy. We just when with the advent of the Trump administration, we stopped using human rights in his speech and strategies." <laughs> 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 so these, I think, these terms really matter. That's a really, really interesting、matter. point. So it's almost、yeah. like you 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 work out what are going to be the things that sort of bridging values between you and that leader、right. to stress,、yes. so that with、yep. uh, Obama it might be human rights, but then you get dealing with the Trump administration, and you talk about golf. You know, Yeah, <laughs> golf. <laughs> golf becomes the key word. Golf, hotels, <laughs> real estate, Lear jets. Yeah, <laughs> do they have strategies for avoiding, you know, photos they don't want to, they don't want to be in. Like, you know, or do do people just sort of get stuck at these meetings? You know, how how much of it? How much of it is orchestrated? These these sort of G- well, you mean yeah, like in the, the G twenty photo? Yeah, well, yeah these, they're all know, there. They're going to have to all be in it. I mean, that's the yeah. Long short of it. I mean, I'm sure that. You know, you can only orchestrate sort of your own behaviour if there's another party. You know, I don't really know of any sort of orchestrating that happens before they meet. You know, let's look like this in the photo, but often the body language is very telling. I think when you, when it, you look it, at it can、pictures. be, and the photos can certainly、yeah. be illustrative of, illustrative of that. But but also photos can lie because they can catch you know someone in a half blink or whatever, and and, and it might look like a, a an expression of utter disdain, but that may not have literally been the case. Having said that, I did see a photo from the G20 of Merkel, Angela Merkel, and <laughs> Putin、um, uh, shaking hands, and、uh, you know really <laughs> she's quite expressive.、Uh, yeah, there was there, there was yeah, ice right, in that relationship. Right, you can see that.、Uh, And even、um, the the footage went viral of Ivanka Trump, you know, talking to the yes, world、uh, leaders, and the the very subtle look of disdain that 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 drew as well. Yeah, because Christine I mean, Lagarde was there, and、uh, right. <laughs> Emmanuel Macron, and,、uh, and and a few others. And yes, and there's Ivanka. Is that her name, Ivanka, Ivanka Trump? Trump? Yeah, I, yeah. I can I can never remember the names <laughs> of the royal family, and this、yeah. is just the U.S. version.、Right. Seems to me. But I think you know, I I also think that. These are occasions in which the staffers are in this state of permanent high tension,、mm. because the last thing they want is their leader seen to be looking like the unpopular guy at the cocktail party,、right. but that no one's talking to. <laughs> and so, behind the scenes, there are all of these kind of advisers lining up, you know, sort of chance meetings. And well, know, do you remember it, that that amazing time when when、uh, Rudd? Was prime minister, and he 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 did that kind of weird salute on entry to a crowded room to George W. Bush. <laughs> That's right. And,、uh, <laughs> it, it was just you know that sort of hokey style that I'd had. I mean, he'd done it to me when I'd seen him a few times when I was.、Right. I was actually there at the time, and and、um, it was、uh, yeah, so much coverage about how bad this was, and the leaders are trying to act naturally, but they can get just absolutely.、Um, Yep. Yeah, you get one of those pictures of say three or four leaders talking, and if you're the you know you you know your your leaders off to the side, 
and you suddenly look like just at that moment you've been completely closed out and you know all of those appearances are really as you say that the minders are just panicking that their leader's going to get caught in one of these uh, sort of moments and you and and your worst nightmare would have to be a barack obama who's just cool anywhere he goes right and everyone wants to be with him yeah and so you know for for rudd's staffers and then for abbott's staffers you're just thinking oh my god you what know gonna he's do? gonna look so daggy next to barack yeah <laughs> so uh, yeah. i'm sure the reflected glory will, will, will shine <laughs> off it's funny though the thing about leaders is that they they're, they're top dog in their country right and there's a certain reluctance it's a bigger pond yeah, yeah. it's the bigger pond and there's a reluctance here i've i've noticed this in a number of prime ministers i've interviewed over the years that there's a sort of a coolness towards other leaders when you when you talk in any kind of uh, admiring way about them oh, it's almost like well hang on i'm the leader you know yeah. He, he's okay, but he's buggered up healthcare, or he hasn't done this right, or whatever. You know, so Alan Gingell, who was uh, Paul Keating's international advisor, always pointed out though that um, he he'd never seen a prime minister, an Australian prime minister, who didn't start to really enjoy the international stuff. Mm. And Alan's mm. point was, it was because you were suddenly in a room with a bunch of people who shared a lot of your issues and challenges and problems. And also they didn't want your job. And so suddenly it was this uncompetitive kind of atmosphere. And Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. And his observation was that, you know, whoever the prime minister is, they really start to enjoy this kind yeah, of stuff. That's so. true. That's been my observation too, having sort of traipsed around behind a number of prime ministers. Even I was standing very close to Julia Gillard in Brussels at the time that right. she made that comment about, about school kids. Yeah, about wanting to being happier in front of a classroom than on the international stage. I was actually standing just off camera. Uh, I think it was a live interview into 7.30 report or 7.30 uh, and um, – I was standing just off camera with my little dictaphone. I was working for a newspaper at the time. There weren't very many journals, journos traveling on that trip. And I remember thinking, even as she said it, I thought, that's, that's not great. And I understood yeah. why she said it because she was trying to sort of delineate herself from Kevin Rudd, mm. you know, the, the sort of almost sort of globalist prime minister mm. who made such a big thing of, you know, Copenhagen and all these other forums that he'd been mm. traipsing around. And Gillard was trying to say, look, I'm I'm here to serve you, the people, and, I, you know, I'll do what I have to do on the international stage, but I'll only do it reluctantly. It played very badly for her very quickly. Mm. Having said that, I was there again when uh, she made her first visit to the White House and she got on with Obama. You know, that was mm. genuine chemistry. Mm. And, and your point is right, Michael, mm. uh, particularly with her. Mm. She went from being reluctant to really quite adept on on yep. the international yep. stage, and you could you could argue that she actually um, had a very effective foreign policy. You know, uh, Gillard, I think, was uh, the last Australian prime minister who had both a very strong relationship with the United States and a strong relationship with China. Yes. And I think... She signed that strategic uh, relationship absolutely. With, with China, which and, hasn't really been honoured since. And mm -hmm. the Marine deal in Darwin. So the two 
kind of, you know, markers of her prime ministership were a closer agreement with the United States and a closer agreement with China. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's the, the, the first being the pivot, yeah, uh, the yeah. sort of expression of that pivot with those, what was it, 2,500 troops Marines. rotating through yeah. Northern Territory. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, Yes. Now, we might just take a quick break, but when we come back, we'll continue this excellent discussion. Have you ever wanted to make a podcast? Got a story you want to tell? Or an audience you want to reach through the magic of audio? Then we've got the short course you've been waiting for. I'm Martin Pierce, And I'm Sarah Bice. And we're running a very special podcasting for professionals short course here at the ANU's Crawford School. We'll teach you everything you need to get your idea into audio and out to an audience. We'll answer all the questions you might have, like... What should I call my podcast? What formats work? What equipment do I need? How do I do interviews? How do I write a script. How the hell do I use this audio editing software? How do I reach my adoring Spotify audience? And how do I know if I've been successful? So many questions, Martin. And so many answers, Sarah. Plus, you'll get hands-on experience right here in the Crawford Podcast booth. And you'll get to meet some of the Crawford Podcast game. That's Podcasting for Professionals short course. Find out more at bit.ly forward slash policy podcasting. Welcome back. Now, Michael Wesley, you've just come from the Solomon Islands. Of course, we know that uh, Scott Morrison made a big thing of going to Honiara um, on his way to the UK recently. Um, where are we Australian fo- foreign policy-wise in the Pacific? Obviously, it's a, there's, a, there's a kind of a proxy, sometimes described as a proxy war. Maybe that's a bit uh, dramatic. But uh, what, what, are you, uh, what are you seeing in this sphere of influence? Yeah, Mark. I mean, the cynics among our, our listeners may may draw a you know coincidence between it being cold in Canberra and going to Solomon Islands for a week. But <laughs> I was doing genuine research there. No, look, um, I think Morrison and his government. It's not only Morrison; it's uh, Maurice Payne as well. Um, have made a real point since the election of uh, concentrating on the Pacific. Now, it's been a, an historic weakness of Australian governments that we tend to put a great deal of focus on our relations with Asia and we allow um, our relations with the Pacific to be um, to take place almost on autopilot. Mm-hmm. The Pacific is the one region of the world where Australia is the superpower. Um, in fact, a number of people have quipped that Australia is too big for the Pacific but too small for the rest of the world. Um, we are a big power in the Pacific and the Pacific watches us very closely. Now, what's happened in recent years in the Pacific is suddenly China, um, but also a number of other countries have um, started to turn up in the Pacific and um, start to forge some pretty close relationships with some Pacific governments. And that has scared not only Australia, New Zealand as well, the United States as well. And so all three of our countries, all three of those democracies, have in the last 18 months or so announced um, a refocusing on the Pacific. Uh, Ours is called the Step Up. Um, uh, and the others of, you know, New Zealand and the United States have other titles as well. And really, um, if you look at all, all of the things that our three countries are doing, what we're really saying to the Pacific is, okay, so China is building big, shiny new roads and bridges and parliament houses and sports stadiums and so on, but we are your true friends and we will be here through thick and thin 
And we would really rather it that you didn't allow the Chinese to build a port that could be used as a naval base mm. in that part of the of the world. So, so there is a competition going on. We are talking about China as a threat in the Pacific to the Pacific, but interestingly, most of the Pacific refuses to see China as a threat. In fact, Dame Meg Taylor, the Secretary General of the Pacific Islands Forum, gave a speech back in February of this year in which she said, we refuse to see the China as a threat. In fact, China is an opportunity for us. It's a top, It's an opportunity for infrastructure, for technology, for market access and so on. And so there's this really strange kind of Cold War type situation going on for Australia, New Zealand and the US in the Pacific. Um, into the middle of that uh, goes uh, ScoMo, um, and I've got to say he hasn't put a foot wrong in the Pacific. He hasn't put a foot wrong in the Pacific, but it, just going to what you were just saying a second ago about you know China and its its influence and what it's doing, building all of these things. Obviously, uh, there's a lot of money there that can be splashed around. We may not be able to compete always mm. with that, but we could compete on the big preoccupation in the Pacific. You know, the other big preoccupation because obviously poverty and living standards and infrastructure and those things are important, but the other one is climate change. Mm. Now, mm. this is a bit of a weakness for uh, the coalition government here. It's a huge weakness. Uh, it's an even bigger weakness for the United States, which of course has pulled out of the Paris Climate Change Agreement. Um, uh, New Zealand's doing better on that. Um, and even China isn't doing brilliantly on climate change. It has said all of the right things about Paris, but of course, China is the biggest greenhouse gas emitter in the world, mm. and the Pacific knows it. And you're absolutely right, Mark. Um, climate change is an existential challenge for the Pacific, and it is happening now. We in Australia tend to talk about climate change as something that's going to happen sort of, you know, in a decade or two's time and that sort of thing. It's happening right now in the Pacific and it is changing livelihoods. And So they're looking for domestic policy change in Australia, much like most of the Australian population. Absolutely. Uh, and, and when you get prime ministers standing up brandishing coal in our parliament, uh, our news is watched very closely in the Pacific and it goes down like a lead balloon. Can I can I ask the panel? Um, we have another question from Mark Zanker, who was really interested in the uh, declaration from the G20 on on climate change, and he basically Mark observes that uh, the, you know the US was drawing from the Paris Agreement in many ways is reminiscent of Howard's uh, statement around the Kyoto Protocol. So I mean, what is the diplomatic uh, you know fallout of this sort of G20 decision on climate change, and how do you think it will affect? Um, for policy going forward? Yeah, I think um, the really serious implications, I think that, you know, it really shows that the US is focusing, is much more concerned about its domestic sphere. You know, they're saying we don't want to be part of this Paris Agreement because it's going to affect our industries and our workers and um, those targets are too high. And so I think it's really showing, if we look at that in the context of uh, the U.S. withdrawing from the Iran nuclear agreement as well, that the U.S. is kind of undermining its its leadership position in global governance on these um, really big issues. And I think the other implication of that is that from the – it seemed that in the G20, all the leaders were just doing damage control you know, rather than moving forward um, in any of these spheres. So they were just trying to make sure that no other countries will withdraw from the Paris Agreement and in the com 
communique, they um, just wanted to make sure they at least had 19 of the the G20 members um, willing to still subscribe to this. And I think it it was the same on many other issues as well, really just doing damage control um, from what's happened since the last G20 instead of moving forward. Has the G20 kind of peaked? I mean, it's a relatively new mechanism, I guess. Um, And is is it is it or perhaps a better way of putting this is are these multilateral forums declining in their power have they have they gone through their golden period already my sense is yes i, I think multilateralism has been in trouble for some time now um in that uh you know th- these are meetings that uh take place every year um the g20 in particular the agenda is very much controlled by the chair at the time um, and there is, there has been, to, in, in my understanding, a bit of a battle between what you might call the purists and uh, the others in hosting G20 meetings. The purists are those, and I think Australia is among them, that says actually the G20 is about managing the global economy. And for God's sake, we've got so many problems in the global economy at the moment Um uh, that you would think that they would spend their time just talking about the global economy. Yeah, because that is the selection of it, the, the, mm. the 20 largest just, economies in the world. Absolutely. But then you get the others who who then get the agenda and they load it up with all of these kind of extraneous issues. Now, I'm not for a moment suggesting that climate change is an extraneous issue. I, I do actually think that's an important issue for the G20 uh, to address. Issue as well as an environmental yeah, one, yeah. Yeah. But then, so there's there's that sort of war that goes on in the G20 and, and it means that because of the rotating chair, it means that you never really get a continuity of dealing with issues from year to year. Um, and look, I, I, I also think that it's getting harder and harder for uh, other the G20 and other institutions uh, to, to to make really big calls on important issues as the rivalry deepens between the yeah. United States, China, Russia, and other major players. Yeah, that's right. There's a sort of a sense almost that the power has shifted back to those big sort of load stars on the um in in, in the in the global power arrangement so china and the us particularly at the moment and 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 uh, yeah. you know an abrasive russia um and i think i think institutions like if you go back to institutions like the gat the general agreement on tariffs and trade the imf um even the un to an extent they worked when global power and wealth were concentrated among the United States and its allies in Japan and Europe. They were a group of leading countries that pretty much agreed on most things. And so you had all of these rounds of of global global trade rounds that concluded quickly. And what we found is that as the 20th century uh, progressed, it got harder and harder to get agreement within these global trade rounds as countries other than the US and its allies became powerful and, and and put their agendas into it. And of course, the prospects of getting a global trade round concluded now in the 21st century are absolutely minuscule. Yeah, trade's a real kind of mess. And I suppose it's been, um, you know, that's why we've seen so many bilateral mm-hmm. trade, free trade agreements struck and why we're seeing um, you know, attempts through these other sort of sectional groups or select yep, groups. Exactly. Um, but yes, it's uh, it, and and of course, you know, we don't, don't get us started on Brexit and what that <laughs> might mean for for trade with, with Britain. What what did you make, Lauren, of um, 
uh, Morrison's achievement of getting the G20 to agree to, um, you know, uh, new controls on, uh, you know, these big internet companies, big internet platforms like Google and Facebook. I mean, that's that's quite yeah. a quite an achievement, isn't it? For it's a, it's a really Australian big achievement because he's not a major power among the mm. G20s, and he was really going in with his own sort of separate agenda. And it's also remarkable in the sense that. A lot of the countries, you know, there like China, they already control their internet, and yeah. so it's maybe not such a, a major issue for him. Um, I think it is incredibly important, you know, and it, he obviously um, was pushing this agenda because of what happened in Christchurch. So I think it's it's also important for our relations with New Zealand. And yeah, I'm assuming we'll only see more of these um, kind of problems on social media in future. So it, it is probably time to really control it. And I think that was a, a surprising achievement. Yes. Um, what about Putin's comments recently about the death of the liberal world order or you know, liberalism <laughs> has run its course? Uh, what, what, any thoughts on and, that? And he's, he's achieved it. <laughs> on his own. <laughs> no, I mean. Well, George Brandis even made a, right. uh, a a speech in London um, uh, over in recent days where he said that liberalism is in trouble. Although he seems to be coming at it from, I guess, the other side. But mm. there's there's some consensus that, as you described it before, uh, Michael, the um, you know the the those countries where where the rules are, the, the, you know, the rules-based order, I suppose, internationally, mm. but also the rule of law and human rights and so forth, things do seem to be going in the wrong direction. So liberalism is in trouble in some ways. Yeah, look, I, I mean, I, I think that's right. And I, I actually, you know, agree with Putin and Brandis on, on this one. Um, I mean, to go back to uh, the the example of climate change and the issue of why uh, conservatives in places like Australia and the United States are against climate change. I think we make too much of uh, the economic argument because they use that argument. You know, it's going to put people out of jobs and so on and so forth. But I actually think when you look at the real conservative commentators that are driving a lot of this policy, what they object to about climate change is because it looks like an international kind of liberal conspiracy. Mm. You know, you've got the IPCC and all of these pointy heads, you know, saying that climate change is happening and the UN making resolutions and everything. And I think they just oppose it on those grounds. I agree. That that it's it's mm. they don't like it because it's international and it's the liberal left that that is that is all over it. And you know, it's this real resurgence of kind of this this small-minded nationalism. Yes, and a sort of a seeing. tribalism in, in politics. Yep. Yes, I yep. agree. And just getting back to multilateralism and I guess the the benefit I see, um, yeah, it, there is problems with multilateralism and things like the G20, the main purpose I think they serve – Obviously, they, they don't have the power to enforce any of these you know, communiques and things they come up with, but it is important for, I guess, just exerting normative pressure on countries um, to adhere to these liberal norms and, and major issues like climate change and to get that consensus. But, yeah. Yeah, the mechanisms aren't dead yet and uh, they, they do need to persist. I guess it's just a way of uh, just a, a, a question of, of doing that and, and trying to mix you know, what's ideal with what's possible and, uh, and, and, and keep these processes going because dialogue's always going to be better. Now, look, we have to uh, wrap up soon, but I just want to take you completely out of your comfort zone of uh, sort of you know, lofty international affairs and uh, 
um, and uh, you know the power politics of around the globe, and just talk about a domestic matter for a moment, and that is uh, Scott Morrison's uh, just been very successful. He's obviously won the election he wasn't meant to win, and now in the first week of Parliament, really in the first couple of days of Parliament, has passed his tax cuts. Maria, Labor in the end rolled over on this. What do you, what do you think of that? I mean, did they do the right thing? Or did they get the politics right? Was it inevitable? Were they always going to end there? Yeah, so I think this is um, really kind of interesting to think about the the, the, the sort of choices facing um, Labor and and when you when you when you unpick it, they're all really bad options for that party. So you know they lost this election. The government's made this argument that it has a mandate um, to to pass these um, tax cuts. There's still open question about whether or not Australians really understand the full implications of the tax package, and then a, a, a really big internal war within the Labor Party about. Uh, how it should be approaching, like questions of principle and pragmatism. And that's what we've really seen, um, at least from my perspective. Uh, and so the the overall result that Labor has chosen is, I, I think they've actually ended up in the worst quadrant for every single one of these <laughs> these issues because, you know, um, they've chosen um, to be pragmatic and that's understandable and all good and well, but um, this is sort of in some ways kind of the worst kind of pragmatism because they're worried about a scare campaign right now, but they've effectively affirmed a principle that they really don't agree with, that they're locked in for two electoral cycles. And whilst, of course, they have left open the option that they might repeal these tax cuts, I mean, I think realistically that's unlikely. Yeah, uh, so do I. Yeah, exactly. Because once you've sort of said yes to it, it's then hard to turn around and say no to it. Well, but we've just had an election where we saw what happens to you when you try and take things off people. <laughs> Precisely. <laughs> and just every every sort of finding from behavioural economics suggests that this is a really bad idea to take stuff away from people. But they've also left it open to discussion, well, maybe we will repeal it in the future. So they're still open to a scare campaign. And everyone who sort of you know, was energised um, by uh, Labor in the last election by putting forward this progressive policy um, tax, um, you know, and redistributive spend is now really disappointed and angry with Labor. And of course, there was a really big surge in membership into that party after this election. So I, I, I don't, I don't really see how they could have done terribly much uh, better. But I, I think this is actually far worse than the pragmatists think it is. Well, I think you pretty neatly framed the problem there. <laughs> they can't have done much better, but they can't have just, really have done much worse either. Yeah. I mean, they would have done, I think they would have done worse if they'd, if they'd opposed it, frankly. I think standing between taxpayers and tax cuts that they just voted for is a, an electoral no-no. Uh, any thoughts from and our I, internationalists? Look, I think it's, I think Labor is in a position of, of just desperately searching for an approach and a narrative at this stage. Yeah. I think the, the loss was so devastating to them um, that Albanese uh, is is really searching around for a new language with which to to, to pin the government. You know, I, I think back to probably the election of 2004 that John Howard won, that, you know, Labor thought it had a chance and then got trounced. It was the, the, the Latham election. And um, I got the feeling back then that Labor was in in deep uh, again, looking for a new way forward. Um, and luckily, there was this external 
um, uh, you know, narrative, which was the disaster in Iraq that really, you know, Rudd and others started to use to mm. unpick the government's credibility. My sense is that Labor is now looking at the economy. Um, there are really bad signs in the economy and they're hoping that um, the, the, the fraying of the economy will give them that external narrative. Um, in a sense, I think passing the tax cuts is a clever move because it takes it off the front page and suddenly a lot of people are starting to say, well, what else are you going to do to stimulate the economy? A lot of these tax cuts aren't coming in uh, for some time and you've got to wonder what the stimulatory effect on the economy will be if the economy continues to weaken. Yeah, well, I suppose there's an argument to say that uh, if the economy continues to weaken, then uh, it won't be a bad thing, whether it actually does much good, whether it does actually have much stimulatory mm. effect, I guess, remains to be seen. But, um, you know, you're not, you're not worrying so much about protecting the surplus there. You're worrying about trying to protect growth. Yeah. Uh, and that is a question for the government. And it's an interesting point you make about the weakening economy and whether that is what Labor's um, kind of path forward uh, is represented by because – it's possible. I agree. I think that is where Labor's going, and I think that is a probably the the, the most appropriate way for them to uh, realign themselves at the moment. But we also know that during tough economic times, voters do tend to uh, you know worry about the economy, yep. and they think, by and large, that the coalition is more prudent at managing the economy, at managing the budget, and so forth. So it's a yeah, it's a it's a tricky one. But I, I also think there's not much that you can really do in the lee of an election loss. You know, you've just lost. Can there's not on. much you can do other yeah. than kind of try and turn yourself into a bit of a small target and and regroup. Uh, you know, gather momentum slowly mm. with a view to becoming competitive again, hopefully at some stage toward the end of the cycle. Mm. Not much you, you can't win an election. You know, it's the old saying: you can't. Um, <laughs> You can't win a, a football game in the first quarter, but you can lose it. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I I do wonder whether or not Labor will come to regret having supported the third tranche of these tax cuts, because this is what we might be talking about in six years' time. Well, that's a, that's a good point. That's um, that's about how far away they are. Too. <laughs> <laughs> Look, thanks so much for joining us today. It's been terrific, Michael Wesley, Lauren Richardson. Of course, my partner each week, Maria Tuffliger. Uh, you've been listening, of course, to Democracy Sausage with me, Mark Kenny, and we look forward to talking to you again uh, on this uh, pod anytime you like, available on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye.